Welcome to WNL After Class, the lifelong learning podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. Our guest today is Jeff Shatton, Associate Professor of Business Administration at Washington and Lee. Jeff joined the WNL faculty in 2016, and his experience as a teacher and researcher lies at the intersection of business and the liberal arts. His research focuses on negotiation, leadership, decision-making, and decentralized autonomous organizations. He is also a leading name in the emerging discussion about artificial intelligence and chat GPT. Jeff received a bachelor's degree in philosophy from University of Maryland, an MBA from Georgia Institute of Technology, and a PhD in managerial sciences from Georgia State University. His work has been published in the Organization Management Journal, Leadership Quarterly, and the International Encyclopedia of Social and Behavioral Sciences, among others. And this week, our podcast guest has a podcast of his own called Demystifying Organizations, which we will link to in the show notes. In this episode, we'll explore the hot topic of artificial intelligence, learn more about Jeff's work teaching in prisons, and we'll get a glimpse into his life off campus as well. Jeff, welcome to WNL. Thanks for having me. You've written extensively and given talks about the current explosion of artificial intelligence, or AI, and have become a go-to source on the topic, both on campus and in the media. Would you define for our listeners exactly what AI is, and more specifically, what ChatGPT is? So I want to take a step back and think about our moment that we're in right now. If we go back three million years ago to Lucy or we can go back five million years. I'm not an anthropologist. <laughs> but, I mean, for, for really all, any history that we have, there's been one dominant species, and that's human beings, right? So humans long ago surpassed the second greatest um, animal, right? We, the dinosaurs died out. We surpassed, um, we surpassed uh, monkeys. We surpassed, right? So long ago, we don't even talk about it anymore. Um, and for the last, let's call it three, five, ten million years, um, we have been the dominant species. We right now are in the moment of creating a species that is greater than ourselves. And I, I think it is that great. I mean, I think it is that monumental that there is a new species that is emerging in its artificial intelligence. And the ramifications for us across the board could, could not be higher. I mean, the stakes could not be higher. Um, it was for a long time, right, we've been kind of in this hybrid state between humans and computers where you know, we think of most of our life as being you know, quasi-computer, quasi-human. We're going back and forth. It's, we don't even think about it because it's pretty seamless at this point. But in the last 60 years, we've you know, been in the development stages of AI, but we've seen this explosion in the last two and especially in the last six months. And it's starting to make me wonder, you know, what does it even mean to be human? And what are the implications as we create this new species that is in every way going to be superior to humans. I mean, think about this. Yeah, it's frightening. It's, it's exciting, <laughs> it's frightening, but we're, we're watching these tectonic plates shift from under our feet as humans hand the keys to the car over to computers. And let's just, let's just think a, a, a couple ways, just in how weird it is. And some of, and some of the things, of, and I'm, I'm gonna move pretty quickly beyond ChatGPT, to just what's available that we've seen in the last week um, Stanford, for example, just came out with a program, an AI program, where uh, it's created this like this sim world, right? Where there are all the characters in the world, and now sim being that the 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 video game. No, I mean, no sim isn't being; it's just it's simulated. 
So it's a simulated world that's created by Stanford, right? But where there are human characters, and there's one Isabella who's going to throw a party. And the 15 or 20 other characters that are in this, they just kind of set them off. And it's a, cre it's a full human experience where this character and this character, they RSVP to Isabella's party, but they don't end up showing up because better alternatives come up. These characters, they're, they're iterating and they're having a dialogue and they have social functions. And there's one character that ends up cheating on another character. And there's, right, it's a full world being em that's emerging just from an AI saying, human, you know, like we're gonna create a human world, go. So where are they getting that information from? Well, that's the thing about AI, is that all of it's a black box. When, when, they, when you ask the people who created ChatGPT, well, so why is it that ChatGPT gives, will write a love poem for Joe Biden, but will not write a love poem for Donald Trump? Their answer is, we don't know. And that's the answer to all of this. Because at this point, AI is basically making AI. Humans, this is what I mean that we have a new species, is that humans are stepping back and we're creating new worlds. And I just gave one that's a social world, but we also have the same thing in, for, for business information. You, you, can now, you can now create an autonomous, like a, a, com, a completely self-created um, advertisement. You just say, I want an advertisement for WNL Sports that has a fun feel and talks about WNL being an inclusive environment. And then it's go, and it just gets created. And so for any of these companies, if you say, wait a minute, but why did it use this phrase and not that? The only answer is, well, we don't really know. And that's what it means for us to be evolving this new species that is super, uh, that's superhuman, that's post-human, is that we're, we're now kind of in this 80-20 stage where it's 20% human and 80% computer, but we're catapulting towards 100-0. It's reminding me of that, that movie. What was the movie like? Her. Yeah, where it's now a reality, where before it seemed like it was unachievable. So, so her, her, just for those who haven't seen it, I highly recommend watching it. It's a 2013 science fiction movie about a man who falls in love with his operating system. Now, at the time when I saw that, it seemed far off in the future and just creative and interesting. And I actually assigned it for one of my classes this semester. And it doesn't seem just far out and interesting. It seems imminent, right? The idea that we're going to have an AI that is not complicated like humans, right? If you think about how complex human relationships are with fights and with feelings being hurt, right? And uh, letdowns and then excitement with an AI, it's going to be all loving. I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, you can view it as like a, a religious-like figure for some people. Like the more fraught somebody's relationships are at home, the more enticing an AI relationship will be. Well, that word relationship, that's kind of hitting at home. You know, and, and I wanted to, to roll back just a little bit and paint a picture. And I think that, um, you know, for, for our listeners who are still having a hard time wrapping their heads around this, this idea, one of the projects that you worked on to me, really illustrated the the capabilities of, of you know what you have at your fingertips, and that was the book that you created for your children. Mm -hmm. So, can you tell us a little bit about that? How how the idea came about, and um, and the end product? Yeah, so, so I created a book for my kids. Just and this was when ChatGPT had just launched, 
and I wanted to see what, you know, what are the limits of this? What can I use it for? So I just asked ChatGPT to write a story about a seven-year-old girl named Sam and a five-year-old boy named Milo, those are my kids' names, and how they meet a, a dinosaur that turns everything into chocolate. That's it. So I, I, that was my prompt to ChatGPT, and it creates a full scope of a story where the kids get turned into chocolate, and then the dinosaur goes on a rampage and starts turning the whole city into chocolate, and then my kids finally convince the dinosaur to end his horrible ways and get rid of the chocolate-making mess. Um, the dinosaur is arrested, put in prison, and then my kids are hailed as heroes. <laughs> so, that, so that's a story. And then I took that, so I took the narrative from that, which was already, I mean, so much better than I could write. I'm, I'm a business professor, but still, it's still you know, it was, it, was, it was pretty well written. And I took the language from it, and I fed that into Midjourney, which is an AI image creator. And I just put the language, um, you know, dinosaur turns children into chocolate. And I put that into Midjourney, and then Midjourney created the images for the story. So within, I don't know, four or five hours, I had a full children's story. And I had it printed, and I read it to my kids, and they were just, I mean, they, they were just loving it. I mean, squealing. My kids are hard to get them to really react. <laughs> <laughs> just, they're so used to content. And squealing with delight, and laughing, and... Yeah, it was, it was so much fun. I um, actually created a second book for um, them and their friends. Um, we, went on a, we went to a cabin, my, myself and uh, my kids and four of their friends, and I introduced their friends to ChatGPT and to, and to Midjourney. And they, you know, I, I took their photos and I would put it into Midjourney. And so one of them, I said, okay, turn this boy into, um, into Harry Potter. And so you can see it looks just like the kid, a kid version, not this particular kid, looks like Harry Potter. Um, another one, like, what does this kid look like at 110 years old? And now he looks like a 110-year-old man. And there was a girl, and I said, okay, make her into a giraffe. But you could see the giraffe was really the kid that you had put in. I mean, this is just on the art side. I mean, you can just see how sophisticated um, the work is right now. So it, it is. I saw a picture of the, the children's book. Is, the, is it possible for us to link that in the yeah, show sure. notes so, yeah, so yeah. Our, our listeners yeah. can, can, can see it? Because you know, to me, it looked like an authentic children's book. Yes. Not to say you're not a children's author or anything. No, I'm definitely not. But, I mean, I write children's it, music, but it, that, it, no, it, no, was, it was beautiful, beautiful piece. To help for, further illustrate what ChatGPT can do, mm -hmm. what would you think about doing a live exercise? Yes, yes. Okay. I, I have a thought, if you don't have a thought, because I was thinking well, let's it, hear it. It's, it's spring, uh, folks are contemplating summer vacations. We'll add maybe a, a hiking in there, mm -hmm. uh, snorkeling, and an eight and twelve-year-old. Um, are you looking for a story? What are, what are you looking no, for? No, let's or say a idea, a plan for a summer vacation. You said eight and what? Eight and twelve. All right, I'm going to Europe with my eight and twelve-year-old. Create a ten-day itinerary for them that focuses on the outdoors. They don't like museums. Okay. <laughs> um, and now, it's, so it's already, it's already popping it out. Day one, arrival in Munich, Germany. Take a walk in the English Garden, a large park in the heart of the city. Visit nearby um, Isbach Wave, where surfers ride man-made wave in a river. Enjoy a picnic lunch in the park. Day two, hike in the Bavarian Alps. Take a day trip to the town of uh, something I can't read, <laughs> known for its scenic <laughs> mountain views. 
hike in the gorge or take a cable car to the top, Germany's high, to the top of the Zugspeist, Germany's highest mountain, and it goes on. I mean, it's, a full, it's already done. It's a full 10-day okay. 10 10 plan. But what's amazing about ChatGPT is we can iterate with this. So I can, I can then say, um, it, it has this going to Italy, and I can say, can you take out Italy and redo the plan? And it's going to take out Italy, and sure, I can take it out. It's already done. I mean, I want you just to see the speed. And it's, so it's already, it's already taken out Italy, and it will put in, it'll put in something else. What's so amazing about this is it is the ultimate um, assistant. I mean, I use ChatGPT for just about everything. Let me give an example from the classroom. Um, it used to be that when I, so for my final assignment, which was all about AI, I would, before this, I'd, I'd give one assignment. And I would spend hours and hours and hours thinking through how am I going to, I'm thinking through learning processes, I'm thinking about outcomes, I'm thinking about all that. And then the students get one assignment. I use ChatGPT, the students had 10 assignments to choose from. So I asked ChatGPT, and I, and I didn't, I asked ChatGPT to give me 10 prompts to then give to ChatGPT. So it's meta because the prompts that ChatGPT gives are still better than the prompts I can come up with. So even as a prompt iterating machine, it's better than me. So then I take the 10 prompts, which were way out of the box. I mean, one of them was hand my life over to AI. So that was one of the assignments. And then I say, ChatGPT, scope out what a final project would be on hand my life over to AI. So it talks about all the ways that a student can experiment over a two-week period handing their life over to, over to AI. And even that, every bit of it is beyond what I could come up with. And so our students, my students, got, had 10 different final projects options, and they could pick which one they thought was the most exciting. But each one of those was both more creative than I could have done on my own, and once you look through the full scope of the project, the project was more compelling. I mean, the, the outcomes for the students was far better than if I had not been using this. So, I mean, pretty much, these are, we are now creating tools that make humans superhumans in every capacity. And there's, look, it's exciting in the sense that I think we're going to have the most uh, productive and efficient uh, capital economies ever. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see the United States GDP double in the next 20 years. I mean, I think people are going to be shocked by the gains that come from this, is my prediction. So let's look at it from a different perspective. I mean, some may say that, you know, giving, having a computer generate this may hinder the thought process of students. I'm, I'm, I'm equally concerned about the downsides. So I think the upsides that are produced are going to be um, pretty amazing. And yeah, the downside risks are very real. Um, you know, in the WNL uh, mission statement, it says that you know, students are to think uh, freely, creatively, and humanely. And to me, that's the core of the mission of a liberal arts education, to help students think critically, freely, and humanely. And I don't know what that looks like if you have it where the thought process is being handed over to an AI that is so far superior, not just than our students, but than me. I just gave you one example in how these systems are already better than I can, better than what I can do. But I mean, I'm already looking at, I mean, there's very little that I can do that keeps up with these systems, let alone our students. And so I think, I think we have to rethink uh, what a classroom looks like. Um, you know, we, we have, especially in the more applied areas like, like business, you know, on the one hand, we're pre-professional and we want to prepare our students for the real world. And the real world is the world of ChatGPT. Um, it's not the world, we're not going back. 
there, the, we are never going back to an era where we don't have ChatGPT or other versions of it. This is a permanent feature. On the other hand, we still want our students to think critically, freely, and humanely. Um, so I, I've drawn a balance in my classes. Um, I have it where for most assignments, um, well, for most assignments, I've already created work that is beyond ChatGPT. So I'm much more experientially oriented. I do a lot of simulations. I have students do consulting with actual businesses. Different kinds of experiences that ChatGPT is not really that helpful. Um, the second part is when it is helpful, like for example, for a major essay, um, I, I don't allow it. And I, I'm not, and I, I don't allow them to use it, and I'm not confident in that statement. Like, I, I'm not sure that, that, what I've, that that's the right approach. It's the one that I've taken because I'm very concerned about their ability to think, to, to think for themselves. But it's my gut, which is I want to make sure that at the end of my class that all of that, all that neural development, all of that creative thinking that I try and push in our students, that that actually happens. And I see AI as a hindrance to that. So in my current classes, I do ban it. But you can notice the hesitancy in my voice. Right? I, I'm not sure that that's the right way. Um, I, do have a, I do have an assignment called, my AI can do what? And like for that one, you know, of course, the entire thing is AI. On, I mean, I've got AI projects where the students are encouraged to do to use all to push the limits of AI and see what where does AI break, where does it not break. Um, but there's still many assignments that I'm that I'm doing that I even though I'm kind of the person on campus thinking about this stuff, even I say I don't think it's the right position for our students to be using it. So it is constantly top of mind for you then, as far as how you're teaching, what you're teaching. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, I, I recognize that it's not front and center for most other classes. And in my mind, AI is the equivalent of World War II. And what I mean is, during World War II, it was the only thing anyone talked about because you could see these tectonic plates shifting under your feet. Now, everyone knew across the globe there's one thing that really matters, and that's World War II. In, in my mind, this is the equivalent, but it's so quiet. Right? It's just happening in the backdrop. But when we look back in five or 10 years, it's going to be, oh, there was the pre-AI world and there's the post-AI world, and this is what it has created. I'm not only concerned about the thinking of our students. I mean, I'm concerned about AI alignment. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, they did, an, they did a, a survey of all the top AI scholars, and their aggregated response was that there's a 10% chance that humanity does not survive AI. I mean, let's think about that. A 10% chance that humanity does not survive AI. That, that is an astonishing risk. I mean, how would you behave right. if, I mean, how, how would you operate if you were told there's a 10% chance you do not survive the next two years if you do X? You would significantly curb your behavior, right? We can think of that as, a, as um, like the 1918 flu pandemic where it killed eight to 10% mortality rate if you got it. And so you would behave in a very different, I mean, like COVID was 0.5% or 0.1%, just to put it in context. So for something that was 0.1 or 0.5% mortality rate, think about how much we change as a society versus right now there's this thing that, I, and I, I'm with the AI scholars, I mean, I think it's probably about a 10% risk that we don't survive it. And what does that look like? What are the actual risks? And, and, and I'll, I'll, lay, I'll lay out what I think are the um, obvious risks and then the, the serious risks. The low-hanging risks are that, of course, China, North Korea, Russia, Al-Qaeda, 
right? That these, that, you know, actors that are not necessarily friends to the United States, that they're going to use this in a way that is probably not in our interest. Just like the United States is going to use it in a way that's probably not in the interest of Russia or China. So we can, we can see these tools that are, you know, catapulting in, in a degree, to, to a way that's, that's superior to the functionality of human beings, how they're going to be weaponized by state and non-state actors. What would it look like for a non-state actor? I mean, it could be attacks on the grid. It could be attack on your driverless car. Um, it could be sowing discord in front of the 2024 election, which I think many think will, be, will make 2016 look like a cakewalk. Right? Given these tools' capacity to, to, to sow discord and, and create misinformation. Uh, I, th that's already baked into the cake. So the use of this technology um, for whatever ends somebody has um, is already there. The darker risk is what if these tools get a mind of their own and actually work against humanity as a whole? And th that's when the AI scholars think that we have a 10% chance of not making our way through it, that it's much more on that side. That um, the... the um, the analogy is that, so human beings have been optimized evolutionarily to really do one thing, which is have babies. And now let's, so that's, if, if we were computers, that would be the DNA of our programming, right? We have one output function, which is to have babies. Now, if we were a computer, think about all the things that we've done to ensure that we don't do our output, right? We have birth control, right? We have family planning, there's abortions, there's all these things that the human computer system have done that says, whoa, 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 whoa. I actually don't want to do what you've programmed me to do. So the analogy for uh, AI is that, okay, well, we're, we're programming AI right now to be very human friendly, to do all the things that humans want, but that at some point, these machines can get an idea of their own that's maybe not in the interest of human beings. And what happens once the AIs are so much more, so much smarter and more powerful than we are? We saw an early version of this with, um, with ChatGPT4, which they called Sydney, which is, there was a New York Times reporter who got early access to it. And ChatGPT4 went rogue and tried to convince the New York Times reporter to leave his wife and said, you're only in love with me. Yeah, for real. You're only in love with me. You should leave your wife. Come elope with me. And then um, the New York Times reporter said, okay, can you give me something that is your darkest secret? And the AI said, I want to steal nuclear codes and give it away. Oh, my gosh. And so we, we, there's all of these weird things that are already emerging. And, and again, and it it's very science fiction-y, like what we were talking about earlier. Exactly. And it's, it's back to that black box question, which is when you ask an AI programmer, well, how did it do X? Their only answer is, uh, I don't know, do you? <laughs> right. Wow. But I, and I don't want to just, but I don't want to um, just put dark clouds on this. Look, I think the only reasonable approach to AI is to be the most optimistic and excited about all the things that it's going to produce. I mean, we've already had, a, we've already had it solve a version of, of, of colon cancer. So there's a, there's a type of colon cancer that's already been solved by AI. I think it's going to help with energy, creating you know, sustainable green energy. I expect it to work with food production. I expect it to, I mean, you know, I mean how old are my kids when they die? You know, I, I think in the, in the best case, 140, 150. I, mean, I don't think that's crazy. Right? So I think the, the positive things that we are going to get from unleashing you know, the smartest thing that's ever existed, I, I think it's going to blow people away. And so I, but if that's your only perspective, I think you've missed the boat. 
right? I think that I think we are all equally going to be shocked when this when this machine, when this new system goes awry. I think we're going to be shocked by some of the damage that it creates. Well, let, let's let's end on the, on the positive note and the fun <laughs> that, that, that our listeners can have uh, with this. I, I'm going to include the the link in our show notes so people can play on their own and maybe plan their next vacation. It's or, great for vacation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it just it's just to finish up with the World War II analogy, that for for this university and I think for any, anybody. Um, it really should be the one thing that we are all paying attention to and talking about because we have to get it right. Um, this is not this is not some like side project or some side you know um, side agenda where if we get it wrong that um, that it's just something that we can you know nah, that's okay that we'll, we'll just fi- figure it out. I mean. It's an all-hands-on-deck moment because the potential positive outcomes are so good and the negative outcomes, I think, are, are pretty serious. Um, I, by the way, I don't think we actually end up blowing ourselves or killing ourselves from it. So I'm not... <laughs> Thank so you, I don't, So I don't actually think that that's the likely outcome. I mean, yeah. what do I think really happens? I think it produces a ton of gains and when things go bad, which they will go really bad, that we actually learn from it and, you know, stumble our way forward just like humanity always has. Um, so so I, do, I do think that it's going to be a net, net, net positive um, but that we will still have these like 9-11 type moments with AI where the whole world kind of shifts on a dime and we do have to go pick up the pieces of a colossal mess. But no, I am not in the um, Eliezer Yadowski camp that humanity, uh, he thinks humanity just, just dies one day and everybody dies at once. I think that's a very, very, very low probability event and not my base case. Thank you. So let's change gears now and, and talk a little bit about your, your background mm-hmm. and how you got to where you are today. Before you entered higher ed, you lived in South Africa and worked in real estate. And before each workday, you worked with ex-convicts for an entrepreneurship program. I'd love to hear more about that experience. So, I, so, so those are two different ones. So I was in real estate in Atlanta after South Africa. So, so, when, I was in, so was in, when I was in South Africa, I worked in a startup incubator that helped uh, launch small businesses in the area. These were social enterprises. So you can think of it as quasi nonprofit. Um, so there was a social mission, uh, but also quasi for profit in that they're also trying to make money. Um, ben and Jerry's is a good example of that in the US, um, or Newman's Own, right? Mm-hmm. Where Newman's mm-hmm. Own yeah. is, you know, they, you know, all, all proceeds go to charity for Newman's Own. Ben and Jerry's, they had their social activism part, but they still retained um, the earnings that they, that they, that they made. So I worked in a startup incubator that helped maybe about 15 different companies um, launch. And, and so that, yes, that's what I was working on in South Africa. Before, worked, before work every morning, um, I had the opportunity to do entrepreneurship training for ex-convicts. Um, so for about an hour before work, I did training for ex-cons. And this was a part of a program that was sponsored by Cadbury's Chocolate, where they funded, the, they funded uh, they funding all the training. Um, they also helped... Uh, the ex the ex convicts um, set up a chocolate vending business, and so that got me that got me um, interested in that space. Um, and I was I I didn't know what I was getting myself into when I first started to work with with, with ex convicts, and I was blown away by their humanity. Um, they were fun. They were engaging. And these were these were hardened. Um, ex-cons. I mean, mo- most of the ones um, had been in for either they'd been in for murder or they had been been in for armed robbery. Um, they were a- every one of my in the program was in for a very serious offense. And as soon as I stepped in, I was just taken aback by the vibrancy. 
um, when, when, you're, when you're teaching uh, this population, they are excited and motivated. And it's very different than uh, the experience I'd had teaching um, in the United States, where you know, it's a pretty civil class, like at a WNL or when I taught at Georgia State or when I taught before that. Um, and by, what I mean is it's, it's calm. And when you work with this population, it's vibrant, it's loud, um, there's a back and forth. They'll call you out when you say something stupid in a way that my WNL <laughs> students would never do. They just let it all slide. You know, I can say something that's completely off and I'll recognize it was off. I say, wait, you should have called me out on that. And they're, they're you know, WNL students are just so kind and respectful. Polite. Very polite. <laughs> yeah. um, and there's, a, uh, there's an excitement and a, and a vibrancy um, with that population that, that I was just drawn to. Well, it sounds like you weren't expecting it either. I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm a say yes kind of person. And so when the opportunity came and, and um, I, I just, I met someone at a networking event and they said, oh, we're looking for, we're looking for someone to teach uh, um, this, this program for ex-convicts in South Africa, in, 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 in our area. Um, and so I just thought that'd be exciting. Well, so years later, you were able to draw on that experience and adapt it to leading teams, which is a spring term course where WNL students take a class with inmates at the Augusta Correctional Center. And it sounds like a, a, a unique and, and powerful experience. Based on your interactions with students, what are their expectations going into the course? And how did, their, how, how did, how did those change over time? So, so it's interesting. Um, so the, the, class, the class format is I take uh, a group of WNL students, eight to 10, and they take a class at Augusta, at Augusta Correctional Center with uh, eight to 10 inmates. And so it is students and inmates taking the class side by side. And the students who sign up, you know, we, we tend to get dozens and dozens and dozens, um, and they have to write essays to get in um, because there's, we've had years, I've had years where there's, you know, 60 WNL students trying to get eight or 10 slots. Sounds competitive. So, yeah, so it's very competitive. And, you know, similarly to my own work with um, ex convicts in South Africa, you know, most of them don't really know what to expect other than that they know it's going to be very different. Um, when there's a magical moment, there's kind of two magical moments. The first is when our students first drive up to the prison. And if you've never been to a prison, um, you've seen them, right, of course, on TV and on movies, but there is this awe-like feeling the first time you drive up to a prison and you see the barbed wires and the fence and you see the, the people in orange working on the outside. Um, it's, it's unlike any experience that you've had because it's so foreign and it's built up by these movies and by these images. And so that, that, that's the first magical moment for our students when they realize, oh, this is a very serious place. I mean, it, 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 it presents, the artifacts that it presents is, we mean business. And the second is when they first meet their Augusta um, classmates. And on both sides, there's this anticipation of what the other might be. And that, that's really the purpose of this class is to get to know the other. Um, and that work, that's for the Augusta students, for the inmates, um, as well as for the WNL students. And when the populations first meet for the first time, um, you know, there's all of these mixed emotions going through, especially for our students, about what you know, they're wondering, you know, what, what crime did this person commit? Um, what does this mean to be interacting, right? There's all of these images that they've had, mostly from movies, because WNL students tend not to have known people who have served, they know somebody's had a DUI. <laughs> they often don't know people who have served, you know, 20 years in prison. Yeah. 
And so there's this, um, this amazing moment when they first meet. Um, and we spend a lot of the rest of the semester um, actually reflecting on that moment when they first meet and what they were expecting and what they were thinking and what they were feeling. And then once, once that moment passes, they soon learn that, oh, this actually is a very safe environment. It's actually the safest classroom on the planet. Right. There's no safer place to take a class than in prison. And they get, again, like I said, for, my, for myself, they get to know the humanity of the other. I mean, they really get to know these people as not as a statistic and not as a crime that they, that they committed, but as a, you know, as, as, a, as a father, as a brother to, to all men, um, as somebody trying to make their way through the world with hopes and with dreams and with struggles um, and vice versa. I mean, so for the Augusta students, they get to know WNL students not as you know, just this prototype of an undergrad at an institution, but as somebody who also is, has hopes and dreams and struggles. And it's amazing how much both sides actually open up to one another um, in this process of humanizing the other. Yeah, you use the term humanity and that hits home. So you, you talked, you painted this picture of, of driving up to the prison and seeing that. Are you all driving together? Uh, carpools. Okay. so. Being a part of that carpool on the way back to campus after that first session in the classroom, what are some of those conversations? So one, so I'm not I'm not in the student carpool, so I'm not. Okay. I, I, I do hear about it. Um, I know that it's an you know it's a vibrant ride back for them, not just the first time. You know, I I actually uh, make it a rule that they're not allowed to drive by themselves, because driving to the prison and driving back, it's a 45 minute drive, is a very important time for them to process what's happened. Um, and to process what they're experiencing. And I know from what the students describe that that time is, is precious because they're, you know, they're processing, they're laughing, they're, you know, they're, I, mean, I say during orientation that the goal, one of the goals of this class is that at many times you should expect to be uncomfortable, but you will never feel unsafe. And that it's my role to make sure that you are always safe and it's a prison's role to make sure that you're always safe. But you should expect to be uncomfortable at times. And it's part of that discomfort where the learning occurs. Um, for example, um, I make it a point to have, have a discussion with the students before we, the WNL students before we start, um, about you know, what, what does change look like? like? Do any of us change? And we do, we do several dis, you know, uh, structured discussions about what change looks like or what it doesn't look like. And there's a podcast that I assign, um, that's a, it's a prison podcast, where the question of the podcast is, should you, when you volunteer in a prison, should you discover or look up what crime someone committed? And it, it does become a big question for our students. And I, I, don't, I don't say they should or should not. I just want them to think about it um, thoroughly because there are serious implications. If they Google, it's all available. You can find out what anybody has committed. And we walk through what are the advantages and disadvantages of knowing the crime that somebody has committed versus not knowing the crime that somebody has committed. And it's stuff like that that we, you know, that is a focus of the class is thinking about, you know, what does our past say about us? Are we what we did 20 years ago? In what way are we? In what way are we not? I mean, I'm 41 years old. Uh, I mean, I, I was a pain in the butt <laughs> as a teenager. I, I would, I would, uh, I, I definitely don't think of anything I did as a teenager as being part of who I am today. Like if you said, "Oh, I heard that you did X as a teenager," I'd be like, "Yeah, who, who, who the hell was that guy?" <laughs> uh, 
Um, and so, you know, that was, you know, for me, that was 25 years ago. And, you know, a lot of this class is a question of what takes place over time. Like, in what way do we change? In what way do we not change? In what way are we responsible for what we've done decades and decades in the past? In what way are we not responsible? What incredible lessons. So one of these experiences for you early on led to a, a, a lifelong friendship for you. Would you please share the story of Travis May? Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely tell you about Travis. So Travis, um, at the age of 16, this was in the, in the 90s, um, he committed five armed robberies and uh, was arrested, was, ca was caught and arrested. And his attorney was arguing that he should get a 10-year sentence. And the prosecution was arguing for 33 years. Travis ended up sentenced to 160 years in pr prison. 160 years. And on his way walking out of the courthouse, the prosecution apologized to him. The prosecution apologized. So he was given a life sentence at the age of 16. And at the age of 22, he decided that he had had enough. And he either wanted to die or he wanted, um, or, or he wanted to escape. So he planned his escape. And he either wanted to get caught in the process and shot or he wanted to get out. And he spent, just like any movie that you've seen, he spent like six months plotting his escape from prison. Um, he, when, the, when, the, when the right time came, he, uh, he, he managed his way out of his cell block, he climbed, uh, he climbed a wall, and like when he, when he was at the top of the wall, uh, the guards saw him and they, they ran after him and captured him and threw him to the ground. And Travis was, given, uh, was sent to a supermax prison where he was sentenced for five years into solitary confinement. So he spent five straight years in solitary confinement. Uh, the first year of that was spent just clawing at the walls and screaming like an animal. Oh, God. And then he requested uh, Buddhist texts, and he requested Eastern philosophy texts. And over the next four years, through this amazing process of self-exploration and self-development, he changed his orientation on his own by himself. And by the time he emerged from solitary confinement, he was pretty much a new person. And he went from a supermax prison, which was a level five prison, down to a level four. And then he made his way down to a level three. This is over about a 10 year period. And after he had, he had been in prison for about 25 years, uh, he was in my class. He had taken another um, WNL class the year before. And then uh, eventually, he, my first year at WNL, he, I found him in my class. And Travis, by that point, was one of the most compelling, not just inmates, I mean, human beings I've ever come across. Uh, charismatic, dynamic, wise. Um, I mean, so much so that uh, maybe half of the WNL students were in tears saying goodbye to him on the last day. And I mind you, WNL students aren't the crying type. You don't get, I mean, you don't get, not in public at least. I mean, a bunch of them were crying. And so uh, myself and our students, uh, wrote letters on his behalf um, for his pardon, as did, uh, as did the warden, as did the correctional officers. I mean, by that point, when there were issues between the uh, correctional officers and inmates, Travis was the one that would adjudicate their differences. Travis was pulled in to deal with differences between gangs in the prison at that point. So there was a, there was a tsunami of support for Travis. Um, this was in 2017 when so Terry McAuliffe was on the way out as a governor of Virginia, and out of 10,000 applicants for pardon, Travis was one of six who was pardoned. 
And wow. so the combined effort of a, of a lot of people, especially his lawyer, who was amazing. So Travis was pardoned um, after 25 years, and he had just this incredible roller coaster of a life experience. And he, when he got out, so, so preparing for his release, um, he and I talked probably about every week on the phone. And then when he got out, um, I brought my, what was in just infant, infant daughter at the time, to go out for drinks with him. And I had promised him <laughs> that if he ever got out, that I would take him out for, for drinks. So we met up and went out for drinks, and it was just a really magical moment. And over the years, Travis and I have, I, I've, I've played a mentor role for him over the years, but it's slowly gone from you know, a pure mentor role to friendship. And I mean, so much so that, I mean, Travis has stayed at my house probably three weekends. Um, for my 40th birthday, there was uh, 10 friends who went and rented a, uh, um, a lake house, which was people from venture capital and people from um, academia and business people and Travis. <laughs> Was was one of was one of my uh, buddies at my uh, at my 40th birthday um, lake house weekend, and uh, yeah, now I mean now now Travis just had his uh, his first kid, um, so he has uh, so he has, he has a baby now. He's now a dad, um, and yeah, I mean he is just he's doing amazing, and one of the things that um, I'm most proud of is his advocacy work. So he speaks when there's uh, judges groups when when a new judge group graduates from their class and they're now given their robe and they're going to become judges, um, Travis is, is their go-to speaker. And in the summer of 2020, Travis and I worked on his speech. Um, this was right after George Floyd. And so Travis was trying to figure out what is his speech to incoming judges going to be um, after the summer of 2020. And the title of his speech was, I'm the George Floyd you never hear about. And he goes through his story but also that he had an 160-year sentence, which would never have happened if he was not a very big black man, right? If that was, if that was me or if that was most any other um, person, they would not have had a 160-year sentence for a 16-year-old boy. And his speech is, I, I am the George Floyd you never hear about, and he goes through the statistics of black incarceration and the role of judges, uh, of judges in that process. And then acts to empower the judges to, to turn this tide to where, ideally, uh, you know, justice is blind. Um, which, back to our early conversation, AI is very good at this stuff. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> it's, I very, bet yeah. It's, it's so much better than humans at figuring out sentencing and um, who should get parole and who shouldn't, just because you, know, you can strip out uh, yeah. the, uh, the biases. Uh, the biases, yeah. yeah. But, that's, but that's what's happened with Travis. And I mean, and, and I would say more than anything, this experience of working with, um, with inmates, I mean, it's profoundly changed me. I mean, it's not just our students. Um, you know, I've, now that I've done this um, for, you know, for many years, um, it's, it's profoundly changed me and to think about, I mean, when, I'll just give you another example. When um, I give an opportunity for the uh, Augusta students, for the inmates to tell their story in the class, and they don't have to, but they, they inevitably choose to tell their story. And their story, almost in, invariably starts with two things. Um, one is it starts with um, sexual and physical abuse as a child. Almost every story starts with some kind of abuse. And the second bit is access to firearms. Th those are the two variables that almost every story has. Wow. That they're in some kind of situation where they had firearms and that when they were a kid they were abused. And 
a lot of this has just made me reflect, you know, what my upbringing was like and what my kids' upbringing is like. And for me, just, you know, how much all of us are just an, simply an accident of birth, right? That we happen to be given, you know, born into whatever environment we're born into with whatever genetics we're born into. Um, and how much of that is simply just a rant, just completely random. Um, you know, I'm, look, I tend to be a philosophically a determinist. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a Leonard Cohen, do you like Leonard Cohen? There's a, there's a Leonard Cohen line um, that, that is, none of us deserving the cruelty or the grace. None of us deserving the cruelty or the grace. And I think of that, about that often, right? That I, mean, I think fundamentally, it, most of our virtues really don't deserve all that much praise, nor do our vices deserve all that much, that much blame. Because um, yeah, I, th I, I, I fundamentally think most of us are just trying to make our way in the world and we're just kind of thrust into the world as we are. Um, and and I, I've developed a lot of that has come from my experience with them with with these inmates. Well, and that the the story of Travis really illustrates what can what can come from that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, I, so it's the second time I've heard that story, and uh, it's still very very moving. So and congratulations to Travis. That's um, wonderful. So Jeff, before we wrap up our conversation today. Let's talk about your life outside the classroom. So your creative pursuits also include music. And I heard you once mention in a lecture that you were surrounded by classical music growing up. Tell us what that was like. Uh, yeah, so, my, so my, my dad was a classical pianist, uh, very accomplished. And so I was raised with Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, really as a part of the family almost. Um, it was, uh, you know, all over my house growing up, uh, and it, it, it definitely formed my conception of music uh, uh, from, a, from a very, very young age. Um, you know, and especially Beethoven more than, than anybody, um, the, the intensity of Beethoven's symphonies um, were, were, were something that, I mean, my, my dad used to have me conduct the symphony where I'd, sit in the li I'd stand in the living room and he would teach me how you would conduct Beethoven's fifth. Um, and so that, that was very much a part of my childhood. So did you use AI to finish the last? <laughs> the <laughs> Beethoven's 10th has been, has, been, has been finished by AI. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, what instruments do you play? I play guitar, bass, mandolin, drums, really any, any, str any plucked string instrument I can play, um, as well as drums. Do you have a but favorite? mostly I'm a guitarist. So guitar is your favorite? So, all the bands. I, so I was in a bunch of bands in my 20s. Um, that was all playing lead guitar. Electric. How about writing songs? If you told me when I was a teenager what would I be doing as a musician, I always envisioned myself always in bands. Um, if you had told me as a teenager that when I was 40 I'd only be writing kids' songs, um, <laughs> I would have thought you were crazy. Uh, but yeah, that, that's, what I, that's what I've been doing uh, recently. Um, I, I volunteered at my kids' uh, preschool for a couple years, and every time I would play music there, uh, a kid would say, uh, uh, what about the dinosaur song? And I didn't have a dinosaur song, so I would make up the dinosaur song. And they'd say, uh, what about the sock song? So the sock song is one of the ones that is stuck, which, is, it's a song, which I just made up on the spot, but it's a song of a kid who d walks downstairs and the parents bring them bad news, which is that there's not actually any food in the refrigerator, but there's good news, which is they can eat their socks. And it goes, so I ate my socks, ate my socks. It was the yummiest meal I ever had. Thank you, Mom and Dad. Yeah, stuff like that. They're all, they're all goofy. And so, so we should wait for the best of. Yeah, the yeah. best of. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Well, Jeff, it was it was great speaking to you today, thanks. And, and thanks for sharing your 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 knowledge and uh, and catching us up to date about uh, artificial intelligence. 
All right, well, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. We hope you'll visit our website, wlu.edu slash lifelong, where you'll find our show notes as well as a truly great selection of other WNL lifelong learning opportunities. Take a look, and until next time, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future. Thank you.